0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton.
1: And I'm Nir Shafir.
0: This is the newest installment of our Legal Transformation in the Ottoman Empire series. You can find out about the full series on our website. And uh, it's actually a rather important addition to that series because we're going to talk about what changed uh, about Islamic law in like a fundamental way as a result of uh, the rise of the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman Uh, expansion from the 16th century onward. Uh, Our guest today is Guy Barak, uh, Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies librarian at New York University. Guy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Very nice to have you here. Guy is the author of a recently released book entitled The Second Formation of Islamic Law coming out with Cambridge uh, this year. You can find the link to purchase or find uh, Guy's book on WorldCat on our website. Uh, And today we're going to talk about some of the uh, broader strokes and contours of that work. So let's start right with the title of this book because it's a provocative title a little bit. Second Formation of Islamic Law is Not a Small Claim. It's saying essentially that uh, we have an entirely new formation of Islamic law under the Ottoman Empire. A very uh, big uh, historical shift. Why don't you tell us why you chose to to frame the topic in this way?
2: So I'm, I was inspired by a very famous book that was apparently never written by Oleg Rabar, It was supposed to be um, a second or an addition to his first book entitled The, the Formation of Islamic Art. Uh, and he thought that in the post-Mongol period, there is a second formation of Islamic art. And I thought that for somewhat different reasons, Around the same time period, there is a second formation of Islamic law and um, to some extent some some of the development he finds in Islamic art I saw some similarities um, in in Islamic law and political thought.
0: so you're even seeing the the change in Islamic law as part of a broader uh, intellectual shift or
2: yeah, I mean, to some extent, I think that Islamic law is part of a much broader intellectual and cultural development in um, different aspects of religious life, artistic um, expression in the post-Mongol period more generally. And I think that in general, the book is is an Ottoman book because I was trained as an Ottomanist and this is the languages I have. Um, so in some sen- in, in a sense, it is my comfort zone. But I think that the book is essentially a post-Mongol book. Uh,
0: that's that's very interesting because we know that the Mongols touch a lot of different areas of the, of the Muslim world uh, historically. And so maybe later on in the podcast, we can talk about what you think some of the grounds for comparison are between sure. those different places. Uh, but before doing so, why don't you tell us specifically what is this second formation? What changes in the post-Mongol period?
2: So the way I see it, I think that the main change, if we compare what's going on under the Ottoman, um, if we compare it to other legal regimes and legal systems um, in Islamic history, is that there is a shift from the jurist to the um, ruling dynasty or the sultan um, in terms of who has the right to define the doctrine and the structure of the school, um, the madhhab. That is the Sunni school of law. And I think that here we see a qualitative difference. It's not another story or simple a simple story of patronage in terms of employment or appointing judges. But you, what I see is a radical and very deep intervention in the doctrine of the school, in shaping the doctrine of the school.
1: So uh, just to, I mean, to clarify things to so listeners who, may, who might not be familiar with Islamic law, like, how how is islamic law formed you know in the classical period or in the pre-mongol period who who gets to make create law and how is it shaped
2: so at least from say the ninth the ninth century um, there is this division of labor that the jur- between the jurist and the ruling uh, elite and the jurists are those that uh, shape the doctrine and decide what is the mainstream of the school. And this is why Islamic law is often described as jurist law. I think that what we see in the post-Mongol period, um, especially from the f- 15th century, um, we see dynasties and rulers intervening um, beyond appointment of judges. Um, we really see them shaping schools by creating establishments. Um, something that we, or by appointing muftis, something that we really don't see before that. Could you kind of elaborate
1: on that further? Because I know that in you know in the medieval period, for instance, like um, in Baghdad and other places, that you know madrasas were built, uh, scholars were given positions in those madrasas. How does the Ottoman period or the post-Mongol period? Uh, how does that change? Yeah, what do what these interventions exactly? look like exactly?
2: So there are several things. First is. The first thing is that the Ottomans have um, a learned hierarchy, and the learned hierarchy has been studied by many, especially from the social and the institutional side of it. But the doctrinal side seemed um, understudied to me. Um, and what I was interested in is why was it so important for them to have a learned hierarchy? Why was it so important for them to appoint mufti? Something that no one has, no one had done before, um, and and. It seemed to me, and jurists from other parts of the empire, especially opponents to this move, recognize, is that they did it because they wanted to privilege or promote certain legal views within a broader range uh, of views within the school. (laughs)
0: Okay, so maybe to understand a little bit more what the implications of the shift you're describing are, maybe you can talk about the specific historical context in the Ottoman period where you see this uh, second formation really taking shape. I know that in your work you focus, you you give some emphasis to uh, the Ottoman incorporation of the Arab provinces.
2: Yeah, so I'll start by saying that it starts in the 15th century and it's not particularly related to the to the conquest of the Arab lands. The what happens after the conquest of the Arab lands is that there is um, this dialogue between different views about rulership, about the function of the ruling elite in the context of the madhab, between jurists from the Ottoman lands, members of the learned hierarchy, and jurists who were not appointed or affiliated with this hierarchy from the Arab lands. And this debate was actually very useful for understanding the assumptions that different jurists and different dynasties made about their, um, their role in for informing the school. Right, because the dialogue sh-
0: sort of exposes what's new about the Ottoman legal system, Right through the reactions of uh, jurists. And right, their and world.
2: in in general, conquest are very useful moments because conquests are in in many ways there are moments of crisis, and it forces people to explain more clearly how they envision the order of the world and the legal and, or the legal and political cosmology uh, they lived in. And how do you see their future?
0: I mean, could you give an example of one of the major points of contention that arose out of this? Uh, yeah. So, example?
2: so th- one of the main issues is the is the appointment of muftis. So the Ottomans, from at least the fifteenth century, appoint muftis, um, and it 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 has become um, a common practice throughout the Arab lands after the conquest. But many jurists. Um, who, mostly from the Arab lands, who were not affiliated with the dynasty, um, uh, opposed this development and and tried to say that the state should not intervene in the appointment of muftis. Um, So where should the mufti come from? Yeah, Yeah. how were muftis appointed before him? Before that, everyone who received um, a permit from his teacher to teach law and issue fatwas, was considered a Mufti. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why it was a status. So you were, once you were declared Mufti, you were a Mufti for life. The Ottomans, and they are not the only dynasty um, to do this, um, actually fired Muftis and removed Muftis from office. And that's something that is very, uh, it's, it's pretty new. Um, but other... D- Jurists from the Arab lands sort of defended or promoted a very different understanding of this institution.
1: So what we have here is essentially you have a post-Mongol state that's trying to centralize or its juridical arms. Um, and then you have you know a, a population that's recently been conquered that has used a much more decentralized system, right? The Arab, the Arab scholars, anyone, right. can, anyone who's qualified can essentially make a legal opinion. So what was the, I mean, other than complaining... Uh, how did How did these arab scholars uh, protest you know were their protests taken seriously what was the what was the
2: kind of result out of the so one one of the things that is interesting about this debate and I think that this is one of the reasons why it this debate has never attracted the attention I think it deserves in the in modern historiography is that this debate was never It was a very low-key debate between jurists. Um, But I think that one of the reasons why it never reached, um, say, a crisis is because um, of the centralized nature of the empire um, or the the centralized nature of the legal landscape of the empire, where you have appointed jurists and non-appointed jurists, some really influential figures, um, who... Who kept their position and kept issuing fatwas even though they never held an official appointment. And in this sense, it's very similar to um, what we have today. We have um, state-sponsored establishments, but we also have various authorities that are not affiliated with states. And many of these figures are as influential, if not much more so, than the um, state-appointed Juries. So when would just to
1: kind of uh, follow up on this? Like when would you need a state fatwa uh, delivered by a state, a legal opinion given by uh, a jurist, a mufti from the state, and when might you want one that's not from a state-appointed mufti? I mean, the point is like what what power do the muftis have in the end? Like what are they actually? What privileges do they do these state-appointed muftis have that the other ones don't? When when do people actually use? So
2: this so this was one of the main. Perhaps, perhaps methodological questions I had to face because it's really difficult to know um, to what extent people use these muftis intentionally. Um, but it seems very clear that in official legal procedures, the fatwa of the officially appointed mufti carried greater weight than the weight than the than the fatwa by the non-appointed mufti. Mufti, with some exceptions, um, but for many other, um, but for many other purposes, fatwas by non-appointed muftis or by non-official, I mean unofficially appointed muftis, um, were as useful, um, and sometimes they. We know that people used. So you could take them to a judge. Like, could you give us an a,
1: an example? I mean,
2: I, I mean, I we, we theoretically, and I, I we as. I assume that people brought them to the judge, but the judge always favored the fatwa of the state-appointed mufti. But we know of cases where people took court resolutions or other fatwas by state, state-appointed muftis to non-appointed muftis, to non-appointed muftis um, who ruled differently. So we see a very complex legal landscape where with multiple authorities at play.
0: So, Guy, you're, de- you're describing a pretty significant shift in uh, adjudication, essentially, in Islamic law. And I'm wondering how uh, this shift fits into the extant scholarship, a-, a lot of quality scholarship over past decades on uh, uh, the function of the, the Ottoman uh, legal court system during the early modern period, um, uh, of course, how uh, the courts were situated within maybe what we could call the broader social history of the Ottoman Empire and, and the function that they were playing in provincial society, um, because so many of our examples of Islamic law in practice historically actually do come from these Ottoman court records, which are the by far the most uh, the largest extent uh, source of information about the functions of Islamic law in practice. It's kind of a catch twenty two, right? We don't necessarily know how it was functioning before, but How would you say uh, the shift you're describing impacted the function of those courts and and, and what does it tell us about uh, some of the topics that people have been studying using these court records over past decades?
2: Well, it's a very complicated question that I'm not sure I I know enough to answer it. But I, I can say this, that I think that once you look at the complex legal landscape of the Empire, and you realize that the courts are just one venue or one site among many. Um, I think it relativizes the law the court in a very interesting way. And not only in relation to other actors, but even the legal procedure itself, it forces you to look at the court record and see what is it, what is it that we are looking at. Is it um Or where is the state, or where is the dynasty, and where is the learned hierarchy in the court record? Is is everything that is in the court records um, of interest to them in the same way, or is the court record just like a platform um, provided by the state? Because, for instance, we know that certain issues were adjudicated only in front of the the main judge or the the chief judge that was sent from Istanbul, um, but other cases were adjudicated um, by different judges. Some of them were um, natives of the um, were natives of the uh, Arab provinces. Um, so I think in understanding this complexity um, helps us to see or to read the court records in a more sophisticated way. So I think you've given us.
1: This- a really good kind of overview of this attempt at centralization of appointing muftis, but where did this drive, you know, why, why did the Ottomans or these post-Mongol dynasties want to centralize? Where did this drive uh, to control the jurist law come from? Uh, I know in your book, you've kind of brought up this notion of dinas law or what is commonly called it, kanun. Can you uh, explain that for us?
2: Yeah, so maybe we should just say for our, um, for those who don't know the ottoman system uh, the ottoman legal system uh well so basically um there, we we are we are dealing with two uh, bodies of law um one let's call it islamic law um however defined and the other is dynastic law and i think that ottomanists have been trying um to figure out how these um how these legal discourses interacted. And there were, I mean, and I think that many Ottomans tried to figure out uh, to what extent these two discourses were reconciled, um, if at all. And, and what, to me, to me it seems that the main issue is the legal claims that dynasties were making in the post-Mongol period, in general, as you said, and particularly the Ottomans. Um, and, The way I see it, I think that kanun is, as a legal claim and not necessarily in terms of positive law, is an attempt by the dynasty to shape other legal discourses in the Ottoman domains. The uh, Hanafi Madhab being an interesting case study, but I think we can see it in other legal discourses as well.
1: I mean, was this something that was started with the Mongols? Did kanun... I mean, why? Why is it a post-Mongol thing?
2: In many ways, or the way at least I see the genealogy, the way the Ottomans themselves understood that themselves understood the genealogy, uh, they see it as um, an Ottoman version of the, uh, or an Ottoman adaptation of the um, Mongol yasa. And that's the way, by the way, that tourists from the Arab lands, when they see, or when they talk about Ottoman Kanun, they refer to it as Ottoman Yasa. Yes. And so this is wha- this is how I see, or this is where I see the continuity. And this is why I think it's a post-Mongol uh, phenomenon. And we see references to the Yasa in, in other parts of the Islamic East in the post-Mongol period, in Central Asia, in Iran, and and in and in India,
0: so does it not have much to do with Byzantine dynastic law
2: or you know it's when you're reconstructing genealogies um you always you always reach this dead end because you yes maybe 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 it has to do with mm. Byzantine but I, I I am I do think that reconstructing discursive genealogies is a way of making sense um Or kind of see in what or what I try to see is I wanted to see what discourses shaped the way the Ottomans understood themselves as rulers and legislators.
0: Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Graydon and Nir Shafir talking with Guy Barak about his newly released book, "The Second Formation of Islamic Law," it came out with Cambridge uh, University Press this year. Uh, we were just talking about what you were calling discursive genealogies, in other words, how. Uh, the Ottomans see their new legal system as part of a longer legal tradition that you're saying is uh, in part or largely actually tied to the Mongol or post-Mongol legal tradition we're talking about. And we, we've we kind of been hinting at a larger question. You know, there's many post-Mongol states and there's many centralizing, uh, expanding, uh, we could say, Islamic empires during the early modern period. Um, so maybe could we put the our discussion of the second formation of islamic law in the ottoman empire within a broader context of those empires i don't know if we could talk about safavid iran or mughal india it's up to you is this is this a a broader phenomenon among these large centralizing states
2: i think it is um in part because they draw on the same or shared ideals about um Governmentality and uh, and rule, and many people have looked at those things in different parts of the uh, of the Islamic East in that period um in terms of law, I think we we do some we do see some interesting similarities at least I see some interesting similarities. I think that what the Mughals um especially are except with the Fatahlamgiriya is very similar to what the Ottomans are doing. I think that the the that the Safavid, uh, the Safavid declaration and adoption of um, an official school of law um, is very similar to, the, to to what the Ottomans are doing. And it's just worth saying that the the Safavid the Safavids are an interesting case because it's one of the few cases in Islamic history where we actually have an official declaration of of a school of law. With the Ottomans, we never, we don't know when they consider or they decided that they are Hanafis. But with the, with the Safavids, mm-hmm. we can actually, um, we can actually pinpoint this moment. Uh, and I think that the Safavids, because they were late comers, uh, understood something about the the logic of rule in the Islamic East, and they understood that a ruler has to have a madhab. And this is why um and this is why they do it the first thing they do when or one of the first things they do uh, when they take over uh, Tabriz in five uh, in fifteen o one. so it, does it function the
0: same way in Safavid Iran that they're appointing muftis and and this kind of thing is this the- i'm not
2: you know i'm yeah. I'm not an expert in Safavid history, but it seems to me uh that you can see. Uh, or there is an attempt to centralize and build a learned hierarchy. Um, several people have worked on it. Rula um, Abisab, for example, and Maria Moazen have worked on this, um, on the rise of a madrasa system in Safavid Iran. And I think there are clear similarities. Um, and this suggests that they're all part of the same story. So you've spoken about kind of
1: similarities emerging out of uh, you know a shared Mongol legal uh, genealogy and the trajectories that those follow. I mean, what are, I don't know if you know this, but what are the differences, for instance, between them? Like what kind of uh, variety amongst these uh, different trajectories exist? I mean,
2: some of the differences, I mean, w- some of these issues um, have not been studied systematically. So we suffer from... Uneven scholarship, at least in terms of, um, for instance, we don't know what was taught or how madrasas worked in Mughal India, or at least I don't know how madrasas worked in Mughal India. We know very little about Central Asia. Um, so, what I had, or when I came up with this broader framework, is what I could see in, in secondary literature. Uh, so, yes, but there I'm sure there are differences, um, in part because many of these empires were different. Um, not every legal institution... they are not exact replicas. <laughs> um, they are, uh, there are differences, but I think that they all have this connected legal history um, and they all draw on the same legal tradition in different ways.
0: Well, I know for... Listeners who, like me, are more familiar with the 19th and 20th centuries, when we think about big departures in, in the legal history uh, of the Muslim world, we tend to think of, for example, issues of codification or the introdu- introduction of secular uh, law and secular courts that happens sort of like intermittently and in a very pluralistic manner in, in many states of the, the former, uh, or of the Ottoman and post-Ottoman world, as well as many of these post-Mongol states that you're describing. Uh, in some ways, um, the shift you're talking about in your book seems to be uh, almost a precursor to such uh, a development in the sense that the state is claiming certain rights to adjudication, intervening in in what was previously considered maybe a a religious uh, legal tradition in major ways. Do you see it that way? Or is this period of the modern state also sort of a whole nother uh, question we need to deal with.
2: I think that in the 19th century, um, it's clear that there are new institutions and new practices. But I also think that, or at least I don't see the rapture that, uh, that people, I think, tend to overstate when they deal with the 19th century, in part because that's the way that the grand narratives we have of Islamic legal history tend to see the 19th century. Um, The idea is basically that until the 19th century we are dealing with more of the same. Um, I think that in the 15th century I see a qualitative change. I think that, as you said, I I, I see some sort of uh, proto-codification or some sort of standardization of law that is very different from what came before. Um, and it's tied to the creation of a certain kind of uh, state, a certain right. kind of
0: centralized uh, imperial state.
2: And if you want to look at it in terms of early modernity, so I think there is something in those developments, in, in the legal and, and political sphere, that may perhaps allow us to talk about some sort of early modernity in the, um, in the eastern parts of the Islamic world.
0: I mean, it's an interesting way of putting uh, you know, uh, the Islamic world into the broader discussion of early modern global history. Certainly, these states have been compared in, in many ways, but um, the, your work and, and the, the perspective you're describing maybe encourages a revisitation of a, a, a comparative look at um, these early modern global states that, that we're talking about in terms of the legal transformations and, and what's taking place. Yeah,
2: and I also think that many colonizers... Um, especially um, especially the British in, in, in India recognized or saw some similarities or some continuities between what the Mughals were doing and what they were doing. It's no coincidence that they are publishing the canonized text um, yeah. that the Mughals canonized. So I think it's interesting to see how... Different, genealogy, different genealogies intersect in the same, in the same practice. Um, and I think that this is one of the more interesting uh, projects that are, I think are being done um, in global uh, legal history, to see how different legal practices and different, different ideas interact in specific historical moments.
0: Well, I agree. I think, I think it's a, a fascinating new way of approaching uh, an old topic, which is the history of Islamic law. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking with us about your work today. Uh, we've only scratched the surface, of course, but I, I hope for our listeners it's been a stimulating discussion. Uh, and we'll hopefully offer them avenues for further uh, inquiry. Thank you for having me. Now, for those who are listening and do f- want to find out more about the topic, we've got the link to Guy's book on our website, and we've also got a short bibliography that he's provided for other background reading on the subject, particularly this, these global cases that we've talked about uh, comparing with, which uh, should be uh, fruitful ground for further reading. That's also a space where you can leave your comments and questions and, and uh, find out about some of the other episodes in our ongoing series on the legal transformation of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, we want to invite you to join us on Facebook, where uh, you can be in touch with the over sorry, the over 20,000 people who are loosely following Ottoman History Podcast, we can say, whenever Facebook decides to show them posts, uh, and get, get some discussion going on that page as well. That's all for this episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I want to thank you all for tuning in and invite you to join us next time. Until then, take care.